listeners. I am your host, Sarah Knarzer, and this is A Hard Look. Today's episode is a little unique. On Friday, October 23rd, and Saturday, October 24th, we hosted ALR's annual symposium over Zoom. This year's symposium discussed election interference, with Friday devoted to mail-in ballots and Saturday devoted to foreign interference. Ryan Scheidt, who is ALR's senior symposium editor, organized the event and Professor Louis Caldera at American University Washington College of Law moderated the five panels. Today, we will play you a couple of snippets from the symposium. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, please visit administrativelawreview.org and click on our symposium page for links to the recordings. The topic of Friday's panels was the oversight of mail-in ballots. The first panel featured five government officials, State Senators Tom Umberg, Craig Deeds, and Jen Jordan, as well as Congressman Jamie Raskin and Colorado's Director of Elections, Judd Toit. Here is a small segment from that panel featuring Professor Caldera and Senator Deeds. Uh, next, we have Virginia State Senator Craig Deeds. He is the chair of Virginia's Privileges and Elections Committee. He's had a nearly 30-year legislative career uh, starting as uh, the Commonwealth's attorney of Bath County, then uh, 10 years in the House of Delegates. Uh, after winning a special election, he's been almost a 20-year veteran of the state Senate. He was also the Democratic nominee for attorney general in 2005 and for governor in 2009. And I'd like him to talk just about what uh, the issues and concerns that he's seeing with uh, mail-in ballots uh, in Virginia. Uh, he had uh, legislation, uh, which uh, uh, Virginia passed legislation, which makes it easier to have these kinds of drop boxes uh, for ballots um, and legislation that allows voters to correct technical errors on their ballots so that their ballot can be counted. Because just because you cast a ballot doesn't mean it's going to be counted if you've done something that may inadvertently spoil your ballot. So we don't hear about naked ballots and things like that, that are small errors, but that can keep people from exercising uh, their fundamental uh, right to vote. Later in the panel, Senator Deeds went on to say, The most significant legislation we passed this year was after a number of years of trying, probably 14 or 15, 16 years in a row, we got legislation passed to allow no excuse absentee voting. That in, that in combination with drop boxes and 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 the mail-in votes mean that over 1.7 million Virginia voters have already cast ballots. We started voting here on September 18th. Um, we, we, we got the drop boxes, that legislation went through this year and, and you know, I, I for one know that our we, we have a pretty good security um, system set up for mail-in ballots. They're marked, uh, they've got a barcode when they come in, there, there's a pro procedure for processing them. Every locality hands a little, handles it a little bit differently, but the, the, the pieces are in place to make sure that the, the ballots that are received are counted properly. The, the question is, are they going to be received? You know, and, and um, you know, we, we all know about the problems in the United States Postal Service. We know about the, the, the fellow who's the head of the Postal Service. We can't that's one of the things we can't control. So that's why the, that's why we have to emphasize the drop boxes and the no excuse absentee voting. You know, I voted in person on the 18th of September, um, and, I, and and I think a lot of Virginians have done that. The drop boxes are are in every locality. Um, they're either when they're outside, they're under the the 24 hour surveillance cameras. So and two people two people um, pick up the ballots every day to make sure they're 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 
they're taken in, they're processed to make sure that, that they're properly counted. Um, that when they're, or if they're not in outside, they're inside, they're in a secured um, location in a registrar's office generally, where you've got staff appropriately there to uh, receive the ballot. So things are going well here in Virginia. Unlike a lot of states, we have ballots, we have elections every single year. You know, we, we, know, we know now we've had as many votes cast as we would, we would have in a single year if less significant things were on the ballot. We have kind of a four-year election cycle. The first year, the president, we've got a United States senator on the ballot this year. We've got our congressional representatives. Next year, we'll have our governor and our, our House of Delegates on the ballot. The next year, we'll have more congressmen and another senator on the ballot. The next year, we, we will have the whole state legislature, the state senate and the, the House of Delegates on the ballot. So we, have, we get a lot of um, exercise, I guess, a lot of practice when it comes to conducting elections. Um, so you, you pointed out uh, that many people will apply for the, the absentee ballot by mail. They can also do it online in some places. Right. But then when they get it in the mail, in order to make sure on the return trip, it doesn't fail to get back, they take advantage of these uh, drop boxes. So drop boxes, absolutely. You know, the mail, the mail um, will have election, election uh, mail stamped on it. So hopefully the, the post office will give it priority. And on the outside envelope, you will have a barcode. So the barcode will be, of course, the voter's information. Who, you know, you'll know who the voter is, you know where it's coming from. Um, so that, that level of security is there, but we are encouraging as many people as can to either vote in person or use a Dropbox. And, and, and it also gives you the opportunity, I think almost all states have now that you can go on the internet and trace your ballot to make sure it was received. So you might know before election day, whether you actually have to go try to vote in person because maybe your ballot was lost or something. That, that's correct, yes. Now, could you, could you uh, so other, and you know, just to point out some of the differences. So one of the big, one of the challenges in Minnesota was that some, some of those ballots when they were processed by the post office, they didn't put a stamp on them. So it was very hard to tell when, when they were mailed and whether they met the, the deadline for being counted. In places like Texas, uh, the governor has said, well, one lockbox uh, per uh, county. And in some cases, that's a hundred mile drive. So that's going to be four hours, $50 worth of gas, uh, and, and potentially could disenfranchise a lot of people. What's, what's the Virginia philosophy on you know, locations? What, what was interesting to me in Texas, um, you've got everything from Harris County, 4.4 million Texans, one drop box, and you've got counties out in, in West Texas, one with as few as 100, 120 residents as entitled to the same one lockbox. That, that, that's crazy. You know, in Virginia, we didn't, we do, we leave it up to the locality to determine how many drop boxes they need and where they go. We just have some security requirements to make sure that we can, we can offer, offer as much assurance as possible to the voter that their ballot's going to be protected. And, and I think we've done that. We've, we've had a lot of success with it so far. Following this panel were two additional panels on the same topic. The first was from the perspective of practitioners and featured Matthew Sanderson, Pooja Chaudhuri, Mark Brewer, and Jasmeet Ahuja. The subsequent and final panel of the day featured members of voting rights organizations. The panelists included O.J. Seaman Sr., Theodore Wilhite, Ravi Doshi, and Mark Lancaster. The next day, the symposium focused on election oversight in the face of foreign interference. Our first panel of the day featured practitioners David Wheeler, Jack Young, and T.S. Allen. 
Now you will hear one of our panelists, David Wheeler, on actions that the United States could take in the face of foreign election interference. So it's, it, it has always been the case that foreign governments might prefer one candidate over another because they think that their policy preferences and objectives might benefit them more than others. There's, but there's a difference between a government preferring one candidate and actively being in involved into trying to help that candidate or hurt the candidate of the opposite party. And that's what we're seeing more of now. Uh, one question that many people have raised is, how come the US hasn't responded back? If, if this is an attack on our democracy, if it's a, a, effectively an act of war by other means other than armed combat, it's an attack on the United States and our democracy, how come we haven't uh, hit uh, Russia, Iran, China, whoever it is back? Why, why haven't we responded back? Any thoughts on that, uh, on that uh, question? David? It's a good question. And I, I think we have to be careful. I think that what we see in the press often is, is that, that view from, from 10,000 feet about what's happening at the top of the administration and so forth. But I think beneath that, I think there are actions that have been taken to try to circumvent some of the efforts by these foreign actors to our elections. But clearly, uh, not enough, because obviously with the events that were mentioned last week, it's still happening. Um, and, and I hate to believe that, that this, this, this situation is so politicized that you know, the, the powers that be can't see through this, that this is, like you said, it's, a, it's an act of war, it's an attack on our democracy, uh, that they are not taking stronger action. Um, I, I, I don't wanna believe that's the case. I, I wanna believe that, that the folks beneath the, you know, beneath the higher levels are, are really you know, working diligently to, to try to thwart the problem. But like I mentioned earlier, um, the way technology develops and the way that these different vectors are uh, developed, you know, it may, it may be impossible to completely wipe out the threat, but, you know, turning again to education and digital literacy is probably going to be one of, the, one of the most helpful ways to try to eliminate this problem. But to answer your question, I, I think that, that there are things going on. I think we could definitely be doing more. And, and at least uh, there should be an effort to make sure that the public is, is given the confidence, uh, whether through reporting or transparency on the part of the federal government, that they are doing more. In this last segment, you will hear Congressman Ted Lieu and FEC Commissioner Ellen Weintraub's opinions on the state of election interference today. So in terms of election interference, there are sort of two broad things sort of hap happening or could happen. Uh, I'm a recovering computer science major. Uh, so one of the things that could happen is the actual hacking of voting machines or voting systems uh, to alter the vote. Uh, the second is what I call sort of psyops or psychological operations uh, against American people. So let's talk about the first one. Uh, it is hard to do. So it is true that if you put a voting machine in front of a hacker for three hours uninterrupted, they could probably hack it. But in real life, that's a rare thing, right? It's not like they have these voting machines sitting out in the open where people just go around and play with it. And we have you know, federal and state authorities and county officials all very aware that they need to protect these voting machines protect these systems. And uh, most of them, if not all of them, are, are not even online. Uh, so it's, it's hard to hack. And in terms of hacking sort of voting systems, uh, I was on their oversight commission when I was a freshman in Congress and we held hearings on election security. So one of the bad things about our system is it's very messy. Uh, one of the good things is it's very messy. So we don't have a national election. What we have are 50 states 
uh, running their elections with all different counties, local election officials, precincts, and so on. So it's really hard to systematically hack anything uh, in, in a national election because it's not really national. Um, conceivably, maybe they could go and try to you know, hack you know, one election office in, in one state somewhere. But if you're a Secretary of State, whether you're a Republican or Democratic Secretary of State, you don't want your elections hacked. And so there's been a lot of focus on protecting cybersecurity, uh, protecting uh, these machines. Uh, it is true, uh, according to the uh, Office of Director of National Intelligence, that Iranian and Russian hackers did uh, get uh, voter registration data. Uh, it's also true that most of that you can get too, and I can get, anyone watching this can get. If you just pay a small fee, you can get that data. Um, and so it's not clear to me that it was this major breaking story uh, that uh, BNI Director Ratcliffe made it out to be. I think he actually called that hastily convened press conference to change his subject because clearly Obama gave an amazing speech in uh, Philadelphia uh, earlier that day. And the evidence was coming out that Iran was spoofing uh, emails as if they were the Proud Boys trying to intimidate Democratic voters. Uh, and uh, the Trump administration didn't like that. So you had this really hasty press conference called by uh, Director Radcliffe, who then proceeded, in my opinion, to lie to the American people, to say that somehow Iran was trying to hurt Donald Trump, when in fact, if you read their emails that they were sending out, it was suppressing the Democratic vote. Now let's get to uh, the second part, and, and that's why I led in with this Iranian issue. It is much harder to stop foreign interference when they're spoofing emails or writing fake posts on social media uh, or trying to um, fake out the American voter. The Russians did that quite well in 2016. According to Robert Mueller's uh, special counsel investigation, Russia engaged in a, a systematic and sweeping attack on our elections. And a lot of that was through fake accounts and through bots and through uh, influencing people to think that what they were reading was true and maybe from a voter in Ohio, when in fact was actually from the Kremlin. The good news is that the American people have learned since then. A Pew Research report last year showed that Americans now distrust social media uh, at much higher levels. And people now know when they read something on Facebook, it might not be true. Or if they see a post on Twitter, maybe they need to double check uh, the sourcing of it. Uh, in addition, campaigns learn. So in 2016, uh, the Trump campaign uh, took uh, what the Russians were basically laundering through WikiLeaks and then amplified it and put that out across American people. Uh, they also would do things such as sending out 50 messages in the internet, see what resonated, feed that back to Donald Trump and he would repeat it even if the messages were crazy. So in 2018, Democrats did that too. I don't wanna say we sent out crazy messages but we would send out a lot of messages, see what resonated and then feed that to our candidates and their campaigns and they would start repeating it and we flipped the house. So I think what's happening now is you see now both sides bombarding the American voter digitally, vast amounts of spending, for example, with both the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign. Uh, so at least it's better than just one side doing it. Uh, so at the end of the day, I think the psychological operations by Iranians or Russians are gonna be somewhat less effective at this election cycle because American people are smarter and because you've got uh, both sides now doing it uh, with so much money that I think a lot of voters are just going to sort of tune out.
following up on what the congressman said, um, I think one of the um, strengths that we have this year is that we are seeing a lot more transparency from uh, from the government about what's going on. I think the, the FBI and SISA, DHS, they are trying to be more forthcoming with us about uh, what they are seeing, and I think that is that is helpful. Um, you know, it's uh, I, I'm always a great believer in having more knowledge. Uh, one uh, one warning that they have given very recently is about perception hacks. Um, so that and that may be part of what was going on with this uh, these incursions into the um, uh, into the voter um, databases, which, as Congressman Lou said. Are really not that secret to begin with, but um, I think part of what they're trying to do, part of what we are being warned that they're trying to do is to persuade people that the results are not going to be reliable and that we can't trust what's happening because this is part of a larger plan to undermine our trust as Americans in our own system. It is, uh, it is not in the interest of our foreign adversaries for us to have a thriving democracy. It makes them look bad in their more authoritarian systems. It makes their citizens want to have what we've got. So they try and undermine uh, our system. They try and sow chaos here. They try and gin up trouble amongst Americans. Unfortunately, there are also domestic sources that are spreading the same kind of disinformation. But um, this attack on our trust in the system is uh, is an aspect of this that, that we all have to be very much on guard against uh, and to be aware that some of what is going on is specifically you know, it's it's just a head fake to try and and make us think that we won't be able to trust the results. Uh, but I think what we have also heard from uh, DHS and from SISA and from the FBI is that there's been no evidence of anybody changing any votes. They haven't gotten into those systems at all. And one advantage of a year uh, which has had many disadvantages, uh, but. Uh, we have seen a big uptick in voting by mail, voting absentee because of the pandemic. When people are voting on paper, you cannot hack a piece of paper. So uh, that those those papers are going to be there and they can be counted and recounted and, and that cannot be hacked. So uh, in some sense, we have a more secure system as a result of the increase in the use of paper ballots. Um, in terms of, of money, money in politics, which is, of course, what I specialize in, and as the congressman said, boy, is there a lot of it this year. Uh, the uh, Center for Responsive Politics has estimated that we're going to see $11 billion in spending this year on the national elections. And as a point of comparison, in 2016, it was uh, $6.5 billion. And we thought that was a lot of money, but obviously the increase from 6.5 to 11 is a huge, huge uptick. We're seeing fundraising that is uh, just uh, hard for even me to, to wrap my mind around. And a lot of it is coming in in small donations. So uh, of the, um, I think we're, we're past $3.5 billion that's been raised just by presidential candidates, roughly a third of that has come in in contributions under $200. So we're seeing a lot of energy uh, from small donors. And uh, I think we're seeing from the early voter turnout, where over 50 million ballots have already been cast. Uh, and we're still 10 days out from the election. We're seeing a lot of enthusiasm, both in terms of voting and in, in terms of donating. And, and that's all good. And that shows that we really do have a very vibrant democracy uh, that is going on and people care about what, what is happening. And if there's anybody out there who hasn't voted yet, 
please go out and vote. Voting, this Today is vote early day, so this would be a great day to vote. Uh, if you're voting by mail, get it in the mail early because uh, what the primary reason why ballots get discarded is because they arrive too late. Uh, the, second, the second most common reason is they uh, people miss uh, make mistakes in terms of the instructions. They don't sign it properly. So read your instructions carefully and then get your vote in early. Um, I have been concerned that uh, really ever since Citizens United with the increase in uh, ability of corporations to put money into our elections that this could become a venue for foreign spending. We had uh, one fairly dramatic case uh, a couple of years ago arising out of the 2016 election where a domestic subsidiary of a Chinese company at the behest of the Chinese directors uh, put over a million dollars into a super PAC that was supporting uh, Jeb Bush in his race for the uh, primary nomination in 2016. And uh, not coincidentally, his brother Neil Bush was on the board of directors of the Chinese parent company. That was one instance that was uncovered by some uh, very good investigative reporting, but we don't know what else is out there. There's been uh, a billion dollars in dark money spent in our elections since Citizens United, and we don't know what we don't know. Uh, there are a number of bills in Congress that would be really helpful at uh, trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, there are bills that directly go at um, getting better disclosure of the donors, which I would support, the Disclose Act. There's the Honest Ads Act. But there are also ads that sort of take uh, bills that take a more um, intermediate approach, like the uh, EPIC Act, which would uh, require groups that are spending through 501c organizations to at least attest you have a US citizen asked to attest under penalty of perjury um, that they are not spending any foreign money, that none of the money that they're putting into our electoral system is, is uh, foreign. Uh, and um, uh, from, a, from a legal standpoint, by the way, there was a really interesting decision that came out earlier this year that didn't seem to have anything to do with campaign finance and yet had some interesting uh, effects on it. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times if somebody wants to, that was published earlier this week, if anybody really wants to get into the weeds on this. But uh, under uh, earlier court precedents, a lot of people thought that uh, we could only go at foreign spending if it was supporting express advocacy, uh, if it was directly being contributed to candidates. And I always thought that the, that the standard was broader than that, but it became very clear in a decision that had nothing to do with campaign spending, um, the USAID, the um, Open Society International, where the issue was whether the foreign affiliates of uh, U.S. operations that were working on issues relating to AIDS prevention in, in internationally and were receiving federal funding uh, in connection with that, whether those foreign affiliates could be compelled to um, speak out against prostitution, which they said was going to undermine their, they needed to work with those people and they really didn't need to be criticizing them, it was going to undermine their operations. But the Supreme Court said you can absolutely mandate that those people um, uh, put those statements out because they are foreign citizens on foreign soil and they have no constitutional rights. Uh, and uh, Justice Kavanaugh was quite emphatic on this point, described it as a bedrock legal principle. And the thing is, if foreign citizens on foreign soil have no First Amendment rights, then we don't have to worry about protecting them. We can write very broad laws that go after any form of uh, foreign spending, no matter what kind of speech they are using it for. It doesn't have to be express advocacy. So that really does 
um, make it very clear that we have a wide range of options available to us and trying to make sure that we are cutting off every possible opportunity for foreign money to be used in our elections, whether it's for disinformation, whether it's uh, for paying trolls to um, uh, try and um, uh, amplify other messages on media platforms, whatever they're spending their money on, uh, we can bring it in under our legal framework. If you like what you heard and would like to listen to the symposium in full, please visit administrativelawreview.org and click on the symposium page. Thank you to Ryan Scheidt for organizing the event and the staff at WCL for its assistance. Thank you to Professor Luis Caldera for moderating the symposium and to all of the guests, of whom only a small number were featured on this episode of A Hard Look. I would also like to extend a thank you to the ABA Administrative Law Section, ALR's Exec Board and staffers, Sharon Wolf, Professor Jill Olmsted, and Professor Andy Popper. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the ALR website, and wherever you get your podcasts. We would appreciate if you could like, rate, and subscribe. If you would like to be a guest on the episode or have any comments or questions, please email them to me, Sarah, at alr-sr-teach-editor at wcl.american.edu.